listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Uh, we are today looking at John 14, and maybe one of those verses stood out to you this morning, um, John 14, 6. If you were in Awana or like me in RAs or GAs, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, you didn't grow up um, a true Southern Baptist, and so <laughs> bless you for that. Um, but yeah, so that's one of, the, one of the verses that we learned there, that you learned to recite, and maybe you just heard this, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. Uh, in the middle of this seven-part series on the I Am statements. But before we jump in, this is, the, this is the fourth week of the series. Who can tell me, you can just blurt it out, what have we, that was close, uh, what have we seen already? So we've looked at three I Am statements of Jesus already. Who knows what those, this is a, and, and this is going on your spiritual record. So um, as far as how much you pay attention. So Bread of life. All right, there's Whitney, <laughs> overachiever. <laughs> Plus her family is here, so she kind of has... Is everybody impressed with her? Yeah. Are y'all proud of her? Yeah. yeah. Good job, Whitney. You all are in our blessing, and we're so glad you're in the family. Okay. Um, we got bread of life. What else have we seen? The door, yes. And the third one, I am the light of the world. Who said that? Jonah? Good work, man. I'm in, yeah, he's been practicing with it. He was, yeah, he was here during rehearsal. That doesn't count. <laughs> All right, now you're, you're going back down in uh, the spiritual grade book. Okay, I'm going to tell God about that later. Okay, so someone in my life group asked me this week, they said, what is the purpose of this series? And I said, well, we had seven weeks in between Daniel and summer, and so we just had to do this. I'm just kidding. You're like, man, that is so pragmatic and so... Not smart. Um, but really, that's part of the reason. But secondly, what we really want to take away from this series, the reason that we're hoping that this series is so beneficial is that all of these statements, all of these pictures, all of these metaphors, these reminders are all very physical, tangible reminders of who Jesus is. And as a result, as we think about who Jesus is, hopefully as we go about our day, our week, between now and the end of your life, however far away that is, and hopefully it's a long way away, you're going to eat again. And so as you sit down to eat, you should be reminded, man, I have a physical need of food. But deeper than this physical need is a spiritual need. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So every time you sit down to eat food, the Lord's hope and our hope in this series is that you be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done on your behalf, the invitation that he has for you. Every time, and I, I told Keith this yesterday, um, probably this morning you've already walked through several dozen doorways. And so I don't expect you every, time, every single time you walk through a doorway to slap the top. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you. But as you walk through a doorway, be reminded, hopefully, at least occasionally, Jesus is the door. He is the way into eternal life. He is the way into a relationship with the Father. As you go from a dark room to a light room, as you turn the lights on, Jesus is the light of the world. As you turn on your GPS, if you're like me, as soon as you leave here to go back to your home, that's right, I'm directionally challenged. Hopefully you're reminded, Jesus is the way. As you hear conversations in our culture, folks talking about what is true, what is not true, Jesus is the truth. As you hear conversations, you speak of life and death. Jesus is the life. So that's our hope for this series, is that as we go, Matthew 28, right? As you are going, be making disciples. As we go through life, we're reminded of all of this, the, the physical nature, the physical reality points us to a deeper spiritual reality. That's our hope with these seven I am statements. And that's why Jesus mentions these. That's why they're so tangible, why they're so visible, to remind us of him. All right, so Luke has read the passage to us. Thank you again, Luke. Keith is going to start us off with uh, the very first verse here, verse number one. All right, great. So verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. You ever read a verse like that and think, yeah, right. Let not your hearts be troubled. If you knew the week that I just had, and you read a verse like that, you think, is that even possible to come to that? Jesus says that in this world, just a little bit later, and in this passage, in this uh, group of chapters, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. If you're a King James person, it says, in this world, you will have tribulation. There are going to be things that are going to come up where you have trouble. There's going to be things that are going to tag on you. So what do we do when we do find our hearts are troubled? I appreciate, Michael, you sharing this morning before the song. Just there are days you walk in. There's days that are troubling. There are things that are happening, circumstances in our life. So what if you're like me and you've had kind of one of those weeks where your heart is troubled? And I, I just want to start us off to invite us to just hold, how are we coming into this time? Where are we right now in this? Sometimes it's easier to read a verse like this and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the word trouble in just a moment, but I just want to invite you to just hold, where are you right now? So I can read a verse like this, and maybe you're feeling the weight of living in a broken world. You went in here feeling the weight of living in a broken world? Yeah, see one hand. Hands all across the auditorium are raised. Yeah. So maybe you're feeling the weight of broken relationships. Maybe you're stressed. Maybe there's a burden. Maybe you're scared. Maybe something this past week has had you kind of almost in panic mode or in panic mode. Maybe there's been things that have happened this week that have caused fear, caused frustration, have been hurtful, have caused anxiety, have caused grief, or maybe even depressed. Anyone identify with any of the things that I just read? I can. I've had one of those weeks. Anyone? Anybody? So I invite you to hold that for just a moment. What if, what if that's how you're coming into this time? Or maybe you're coming into this time and you're like me and the trouble isn't just necessarily the brokenness in the world out there, the brokenness is in you. You want to identify with that? Maybe it's not someone else's choices that got you to where you are. Maybe it's your own choices that got you there. Maybe the choices that you've made where you said something snarky back instead of responding with kindness. Where you were quick to anger instead of slow to anger. Where you were quick to say something instead of quick to listen. Anyone identify with that part of it? Maybe it's someone else's, is your own brokenness. I see some of you raising your hand, which is really good. I see some of you pointing at someone else, and that's not okay, okay? Can we just say that? Don't, that's not a time for that this morning. Maybe you're like me, you can raise both hands. You're like, it's all of the above. So what do you do? So in just a moment, I want to pray for us that we say, I'm holding some troubled heart, some troubles in my heart this morning. And we're going to look extensively as we go through this passage. What do we do with the trouble that's in our heart? But I just want to say something before we go into a moment of just praying for those things, of just this word trouble, some thoughts about having a troubled heart, what Jesus might mean, maybe what he doesn't mean. So the context, as we look at this passage, we're coming out of, you know, it's chapter 14, so we're coming out of chapter 13. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He has talked about Judas is going to betray him. He turns to Peter, Peter saying great things, and he knows that Peter is going to actually portray him. And his message going through 13, 14, 15, 16, he's going to have this really lengthy conversation with the disciples, and he's going to tell them a few things. One of the things he's going to tell them is, I've got so much more to tell you, but I'm leaving. Good luck with all your hopes and dreams. No, he doesn't leave them there. He's like, what, what do you do with the trouble that you feel with hearing that I'm going to die and then I'm going to leave? How do you handle that? So when he's talking about trouble here, he tells them that uh, one of the things he's not talking about is just negative emotions or concerns that I have or that I feel the weight of brokenness in this world. Does that make sense? He's not saying that feeling negative emotions, if you're feeling negative emotions, then you're feeling trouble and that's not okay. Here's, how can I say that? I, I grew up with this message that if I was ever feeling something negative, if I was ever feeling sad, it must mean that I don't believe in God. Does that make sense? that if I was ever feeling something concerned or burdened, that maybe it meant that I just didn't trust God. If I was not okay, that was not okay. And that I was supposed to do something with that. I was supposed to stuff that or, or do something with it that was not okay. So anytime I felt something negative, I carried this guilt or this pressure to stuff it down and just try to get okay. Anyone else like that? Yeah. There was a song growing up. I don't know if some of you might know this. It said uh, this, Jesus since Jesus, here's the song, we were singing this in kids' church. Since Jesus Christ came in and took away my sin. Anybody know this song? <laughs> yeah. Since Jesus Christ came in and took away my sin, I'm in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. Which left me uptight most of the time because 
I wasn't happy all the time. If you're not happy all the time, does it mean that you don't believe in God? And that was the message that I think that I grew up with for a long time. So how do I know that this isn't what Jesus means in this? Well, it's interesting because in chapter 13, it says this very same word. Jesus was troubled in his spirit that Judas was going to betray him. In chapter 12, it says that Jesus' soul was troubled as he looked towards the cross. It's the triumphal entry, and he knows he's going to the cross, and he says that my soul is troubled. In chapter 11, Jesus is showing up to Lazarus' funeral, and it says that his spirit was moved, and he was troubled at the tomb. And we all know the famous verse after that, it says that he wept. And the King James, again, I love the version that it says, he groaned, and he was troubled. We know at the prayer in the garden that his soul was in deep agony, and he was in deep sorrow, and he sweat bloods. I mean, he sweat, you know, blood, right? He was in deep agony and sorrow. So is Jesus being, does he have a double standard? He says in chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, that Jesus is troubled. And then chapter 14, he starts off with this idea of don't let your hearts be troubled. Is this a double standard? No. I think we would say no, right? So yeah. So troubled in this, in this passage, it means to be stirred up. It's to the point of boiling. It's kind of like when water is boiling, it would use the same word. We see this earlier when the, the pool at Bethsaida was stirred up. It would say it was troubled. So it's this agitation it's kind of, James talks a little bit about this too in his book when he goes, the water, you're like a, um, in the water where you're being tossed to and fro. It's the water that's going, it's being tossed around in this water. It's kind of this idea of being double-minded. So it's not, don't feel negative emotions. It can't be because that's where Jesus, we could see this in Jesus' life leading up to this. But it's like, don't let your heart, your, the state of your heart be moved, move you to disbelief. Don't be tossed back and forth in this. Does this make sense? So I want to be, be able to hold this. So in the context here in this passage is Jesus is talking specifically about his going away. And he said, don't let your hearts be troubled about my death and that I'm telling you that I'm leaving. Why? Why? Because you believe in God. You believe in the Father. And I'm going to send the Spirit and I'm going to be with you. You can believe this. You will not lose my presence. So you can feel the weight of living in a broken world. You can feel the weight of your own brokenness but we don't have to be tossed towards unbelief because we can believe that his presence is going to be with us. And so however you're coming in this morning, if you were able to raise one hand or two hands or you could raise both hands and someone else's hand, how are you coming in? I just want to take a moment just to pray. And I'm going to just pause just a few seconds before I start praying. And I just be curious, could you name, you don't have to do it out loud, just in your heart, can you name the state of how you're coming in this morning internally? I'm grieved, I'm sad, I'm scared, I feel anxious. Can you just name wherever that is, the trouble that's in your heart? And can we just hold that before the Father with one another? And I'm going to pray for us after just a moment, and then we'll jump into verse 2. How are you coming into this time? Can you hold that before the Father? Jesus, thank you for your incredible promise that we have with us this morning that if our hearts are troubled, that we can hold that before you, that you care about us, that your presence is with us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we can be together, for a time to worship and realign our hearts to you, to your reality, that we can recalibrate our hearts to you. Thank you for your presence in us. Thank you for the belief that you have put in us. May we hold fast to your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. And as we look at verse number two, you see here in verses two through four, Jesus says this, in my father's house are many rooms. Again, he's using a visual here. So put this in your mind as you're listening to him. He's not speaking metaphorically. He's not speaking in symbols. He's speaking in a way that we can see what he is talking about. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, what are some, you can help me out with this one, what are some, maybe some common misperceptions about heaven? So he's saying here, I'm going to the Father's house. What are some misconceptions maybe about heaven, about the Father's house? You're going to turn into an angel when you go. Now, some of y'all, your worlds are getting rocked right now. <laughs> I saw somebody go. Okay. 
What it's else? In the, it's in the Bible somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Hesitations, chapter <laughs> four. What else? Very cloudy, <laughs> as opposed to hazy. Okay. What else? Your pets will. Stop. Abby. Anyone an- other than Abby have some? Yeah, one answer per person. Anyone other than Abby? Got some audio Ab- adrenaline fans. Hey, lots of football. Lots of football. That's right. Hey, that'll preach. Come on, we have it on the mic. What else? Up in the sky. Yeah. What were you saying, Ray? Were you saying something? Somebody else. What was somebody else saying? It's going to be boring. Yeah, that's right, Joe. Go ahead. Yeah, going to the spirit in the sky. Yeah. That'll preach. Yeah. That'll sing. A mansion just over the hilltop. Yeah. I've never heard that one. Any, anybody else? Nothing but singing. If we were to compile all those things floating around like baby angels with diapers on, on clouds, <laughs> singing, boring, it sounds a little more like hell than heaven. Am I right? Here's what I want us to see, though. As we talk about this, when we talk about our father's house, if he is our father, what does that make us this morning? Children, which makes me your what? Brother. And it makes the lady sitting over there, makes her your what? Sister. So we have this idea just from the outset of family, brothers and sisters, not just a bunch of random people showing up in a room on a Sunday morning. We're brothers and sisters. But I also want you to think about the context of this passage. It says here, in my father's house are many rooms. So from our perspective, we think, okay, the house is is huge. We think giant mansion, right? Just over the hilltop. If you look at it from an Eastern eyes or from their perspective, when you were to add on to your father's house, what is the context of that? So what's really the context of there being additional rooms being added on to your family's house? What's their context? Marriage. So what would happen is they had arranged marriages back then. And so as soon as a young man came of age, ready to be married, much younger than today's average BTW, Uh, That's a different conversation for a different day. But as soon as the young man came of age, then his parents would go and find a young lady who was suitable for him to marry. And so the parents would talk, and the the lady's parents would say, well, here's how much much we're going to lose as far as a dowry goes from her being part of our family. And there would be a price for the marriage to happen. Not in the sense of trading humans, but in the sense of giving um, an expensive wedding band to someone saying, you are very valuable to me. And so it may be uh, two cows and a goat and a pig, or this may be a a four goat kind of girl. Like, I don't know. Um, But they would would say, well, here's, here's the price of this young lady for her to be your bride. And so the parents would get together and say, this is how much she's worth. This is what we're gonna take for her hand in marriage. Again, in a, in a way of saying she's a very valuable individual. And this still happens in a lot of Eastern countries. So then the parents would get together and say, here's the price. The man's parents would agree to that price. And then they would actually sit down and have a meal together. They would have a meal. And to secure that price, at the end of the meal, they would take a glass of wine. And the father of the young man would take a sip out of it. Uh, or the father of the young man would give it to his son who would take a sip out of it, who would then hand it to his future bride and she would take a sip out of it. And at that point, the cost was then confirmed. But they wouldn't get married yet. Then the young man would go back to his home and begin adding onto, building onto his father's house. He would begin preparing a place for him and his future bride to dwell forever. You're beginning to see this picture now? So the young man would begin preparing this room, preparing this addition onto his father's house. And families live together. We can talk about community and how much easier it was in Acts 2, 42. But that's the context of what they were looking at. Then as the, as the young man would continue to build onto this house, he would say, Dad, is this ready yet? Is, is, my, is my addition onto the house ready yet? And the father would say, not quite. We need to have a few more things to tweak before you can go get your bride. Well, as soon as it was done, the father would come to the young man and say, 
It is, it is done. Well done. You've done a good job. Now it is ready. The young man would go gather up all of his friends, and they would take a processional over to the young lady's village or town to her city. And they would, the young men would actually go in front of this young man, and they would proclaim, prepare the way for this groom. Prepare the way. He is coming to get his bride. Now, this young lady has been sitting there waiting in hopeful anticipation, waiting on that groom who she is guaranteed to marry. And maybe she hears some of her girlfriends. Maybe there's been a, a groom that's coming down. She's like, man, is he here yet? Is he here? But it's for one of her friends. Then she hears it again a couple weeks later. Man, is that for me? That's for somebody else. So she's sitting there, hopefully waiting for her future groom. Finally, there comes a knock at her door. And it's this young man. And he says, the room, the house is now ready for you. Come, join me in this family, in this union, together forever. Come join me. In, I've, been, I've prepared this for you, and now it is ready. So the bride, with joy now, with her hope that's come to fruition, she would now say, okay, the house is ready for me. The relationship is ready to begin. That's the way that his disciples would have heard this passage. We hear it with audio adrenaline playing in the background. We hear it and we think about this enormous house that's even bigger than the White House, that's even bigger than some of these Hollywood homes. They would hear it as a marriage proposal. Man, and Jesus is coming back to get me. Such a beautiful, intimate relationship that Jesus guarantees for us here in these three verses. Then we get to verse number five, and we have the true miracle of this passage. Look at verse number five with me, if you would. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where we are going. How can we know the way? Here's the miracle of this passage, and Keith is going to talk about this. A man, a man asks for directions. That's the miracle here. I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Okay, good. Yeah, I love, I love the language of bride here. If you've been a part of spiritual conversations workshops, we have a sheet that we look at from Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. It has a lot of identity statements, who we are, who God is, who Jesus is, what the Spirit's role is doing, therefore, who are we? And bride is not one of that because it's not in Ephesians 1 or 2. But John uses the, the words bride often, especially even in the book of Revelation. And so here, part of what we're looking back to is don't let your heart be troubled about if I'm coming back for you or not, if you're going to be with me or not. You believe. And so you this language of bride is one of intimate, is personal, is one of delight, is one of anticipation, is one of preparation, is one of longing. And so the bride, as she is waiting, and as we, as we wait for that day, there is something for us to do. There's, as we're waiting, we're waiting with longing. We're, we're waiting knowing that he is, that we're believing that he is coming back, that he is delighting for us. And as you're waiting, you know that you're going to move out of your house soon. Anyone move? We've got some people who have moved recently. So, yeah, you've moved recently. Yeah. When you prepare to move, when you're packing up those boxes and you're getting everything together, you don't start redecorating the house that you're moving out of, right? You don't start, oh, when you're at the store and you see a picture and you think it looks good and you're like, oh, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to spend this, I'm going to take this to my home and I'm going to hang it up. You might be thinking about your future place. So in this place of what we're doing, in this, this kind of this transitionary place where we're preparing, we're spending our income, our resources and all that as we're preparing to go. But this brings us to chapter, uh, to verse 6. So Thomas is saying, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? What realm is, we've talked about this in the other passages we've looked at, what realm is, is Thomas speaking in? The physical realm. Yeah, he's looking through a lens, of an earthly lens, uh, as, he's, as Jesus is speaking. And then Jesus says this. Jesus said to him, verse 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He doesn't say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a way to get life. I saw a car uh, last week. It was, a, one of those, it was a, like a muscle car, one of those sports cars. It was convertible, and this lady gets into it, and she starts to back out. I wanted to take a picture, but then the lady got into it, and she started to back out of the parking lot with the top down. And uh, the license tag said, live in life. <laughs> and I wanted to take it for our purposes, but then I thought, oh, someone you might 
No, you're not in here, are you? Okay, so he's not a, a way to life. My Bible is falling apart right now. It's all coming out on me. All right, <laughs> so if you see that happening, that's what's going on. All right, so living life, this person. So Jesus is not, he is the way. I, I know for me, one of the things that's easy to do when I read a passage like this is Jesus is talking about something very intimate, very personal. He's saying, I am the way. One of the, the temptations that I fall into with a passage like this is I turn way into steps. And I think we actually have a slide on this. Uh, I can turn way into steps, or I can turn truth into information, or I can turn life into the good life, not feeling negative emotions, or, or feeling the good life, feeling good about life, not having trouble. And when I do this, when I turn the way into steps, you know, I kind of have the same places. If I just knew what to do, then I could do it, and I would be okay. Anyone else there? So I bypass the relationship piece of Jesus saying, I am the way, and I just think, I, I just need to focus on I just need to focus on task. If I could just do the right things, or if I just had the right information or the right facts, if I could just read the right book, if I could just get the right information, if I could just get the right knowledge, the right advice, then it would get me to where I want to be. But usually what this does for me anyway, it depersonalizes Jesus. Does that make sense? In some ways it, de it depersonalizes him. And then I'm looking at truth, and it's not just truth, it's information, and I tend to weaponize truth at that point. You know, instead of it being a, a surgeon's scalpel who is carefully moving in to take care of different places in our life, I use it more like a shank in the prison cell. You know, I'm like just stabbing people. Here's the truth. I read a couple quotes this week that I think are really helpful, were really helpful for me. It said this, sometimes it's easier to trust a system of beliefs than a living God who personally engages with us. Connection with God requires engaging beyond a scientific approach to theology. So there's something in me that just says, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Just tell me what to know and I'll memorize it. But without knowing Jesus, then I assume, and here's the thing, without knowing Jesus, without him believing, without the personal aspect of the intimate relationship with Jesus, without knowing Jesus, then I assume that my way of knowing will actually lead me to the life that I want. So Jesus' answer to Thomas is one of identity, and it's very personal. It's one of bride. It's interesting because Thomas' question, he actually assumes in the question, just see if you can hear it in his question, Thomas assumes an answer that keeps Thomas as his own source of life. Does that make sense? Anybody with me on that? When Thomas asks the question, just tell us, we need to know where you're going so that we can know how to get there. Thomas is assuming that he can make it happen. The way that he asked the question assumes an answer that keeps Thomas as his own source of life. And so I kind of fall in this, this trap, I, at least I do, that right information plus enough willpower will get me close to God and keep me close to God. How do you, how do you get close to God and how do you stay close to God? Well, I think Thomas, and I think I would say this too, knowing the right information and doing the right things will get me close to God and keep me close to God. Is that what Jesus' answer is? So if I just had the right steps, I could get there. And Jesus says, you're already there. You're already there. You've, you've reached your de destination because I, I am the way and you have me. I am the truth and you have me. I am the life and you have me. You have it already. And in this part, we can see that truth, another word for that is reality. It's not just information that you can come to a conclusion to through your own mind. When, I'll tell the story quickly. One of the first guys that we began to read the Bible with when we were in Czech Republic, a very brilliant guy, and he would discuss the Bible. We started in Genesis, and he would discuss it, and he would say some of the most amazing things, and we would think, all right, he's believing, he's in, he's, gonna, he's, he's got it. And then at the very end, he would go, he would throw his hands up like this and go, but I'm too smart for this. And then we would end. And as we continued to go, we'd get to the next, we'd meet the next week, and we'd, he would say, we would look at the passage, he would say incredible things, and he would throw his hands up at the end and go, but I'm too smart for this. And that his way of knowledge, his way of thinking, there was a, a place in him that he was thinking, I'm too smart for this. And you've never had, heard so much cussing in a Bible study than this guy would do. I would, I would sweat sometimes because of the things and the way he would come at me. He would just get so angry sometimes during our Bible studies. And then at the end, go, I'm too smart for this. And I would think, okay, well, that's the last time we're going to meet. And we would end up meeting again. And, and I, always, I always just prayed during that time, God, is there someone smarter that you could send along <laughs> to this guy? Why am I in here with this guy? And part of that, 
part of it was that the temptation is like, I wonder if there's just some information or there's some type of steps that I could give him and I would be released from responsibility of having to stay with this guy until there's something changes in his heart. And after, it was almost a year between all of the language and all the angst and all the, I'm too smart for this, many passages. He comes in one week and I'm like, all right, here we go again. I'm sweating already, just anticipating what's gonna happen. And he goes, hey, I'm in. I'm like, you're in what? He goes, I believe. What? (laughs) He's like, I believe it all. I'm in. It was just a switch in his own heart that didn't come through, you know, being able to uh, come to it this way. Here's Here's how I would close this part right here. The way must come to us. It does not come from us. Up to that point, he wanted what he believed about God to come from him. But the way must come to us. I am the way, the truth, and life. It doesn't come from us. Yeah. So we, we see the identity statements here that Jesus is speaking of. So we see what these things don't mean. I want to see now what the true intention of this is. How when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, his intention is to give us a new identity to live out of, not to live for, not to pursue. But he gives us a brand new identity. So here's what the way, the truth, and the life do mean. So a few statements on these. First, when we look at the way, Christianity is not exclusive because of who it lets in. Is this an exclusive claim by Jesus? Yes, absolutely. But it's not exclusive because some are in and some are out. No, the invitation, the heart of God is that all would believe but it's exclusive because there is only one way to get in. It's not because you're born, oh man, you're automatically excluded. No, the, the good news of the gospel is that it's inclusive to those who are rich and poor and white and black, those who are Greeks, those who are Jews, to, to everyone, it's inclusive for all different types of people, but it's exclusive. He is the only way. And Jesus doesn't just point and say, hey, there's the way over there. Here you go, Thomas. Here you go, Philip. Go enjoy the way. But instead, he takes us by the hand and he says, I am the way. You see, the prayer of salvation is not just a prayer that we pray to a person, this way up there that we can't interact with. This prayer of salvation is engaging with a person, the person of Jesus Christ. It's more than just praying a prayer. And it's a relationship with the person of Jesus. He is the way. Secondly, he says here that I am the truth. And like he just alluded to, if you don't know the truth, you're not dealing with reality. If you don't know the truth, you're not dealing with reality. And if you're not dealing with reality, then you're not ready for eternity. Now, some people may say, ah, well, uh, that's your truth. I've got my truth and you have your truth. Anybody ever hear that? Yeah. I would encourage you, if you are there or the next time you hear that, ask that person or for yourself, go to the bank and ask the bank how much money you have there in your account. And they'll say they say $500, which would be awesome, you know. We have $500 in the bank, sir. And you say, well, you know what? That's your truth. My truth is that I have $50,000 in the bank. You're like, ah, it's not going to go well for you because truth is not dependent on how you feel. Truth is not something that can vacillate, that can change. It is fixed. Maybe you've heard this. You can pick whichever religion works for you. It may work for you, but friend, according to the word of God, that does not work for God. And it will not work for you on the day when you stand before him. There is one truth. Let's imagine for a minute if you uh, had a terminal disease. Uh, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you are dying of, of this, something that you have inflicted upon yourself, not something that you couldn't control, but because of your lifestyle choices, because of your decisions, you now have this terminal illness. You are going to die from this in a matter of days, weeks, months, years, whatever it is. You would begin by asking the doctor, are you sure, right? Get, are you, I'm going I'm to get a second opinion, make sure that you, I actually have this disease, and you get a second opinion, whatever it is, and the doctors confer, you actually have this disease. The next question you would probably ask is, is there any cure for this? Is there any hope? Is there any treatment? And the doctor says, yes, there actually is a treatment. Okay, cool. We're moving in the right direction. Your next question would be, what, is, what are the odds, what's the percentage that this treatment actually works? And usually we get those numbers back, and they're usually not too high, especially on terminal illnesses, right? 
the doctor says there is a 100% chance that this treatment is going to work, that it is going to cure you of this disease. You're like, okay, well, there's got to be a catch somewhere. Okay, so what are the side effects? You know, you see these commercials. It's like you have asthma, but if you take this, then you may, you know, spontaneously combust, you know, things like that. It's like, okay, so what are the side effects of this? There are no side effects. Okay, so maybe the catch is the cost. How much does this cost? How much does this treatment cost? And the doctor looks at you and he says, there's actually a generous benefactor who has paid the cost for you. So there is no cost to you on this medication, on this treatment that is going to cure you from this terminal illness. You're like, man, that would be awesome. But let's instead you say, you know what, doctor? I really appreciate what you're telling me, but are there any other options? Like, are there any other treatment options besides the one you're laying out here? Because what you're telling me is I have to take red pills and I don't really like red pills. I really like blue pills. So is there, is there a cure, a treatment where I can take blue pills instead of red pills? You'd say, no, man, you're crazy. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. You may have deeper problems. Friend, listen, here's where this is getting to. Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth. And thirdly, he says, I am the life. The human condition is death. The human condition is death. And life has been purchased by Jesus Christ alone. That's it. And there is a guarantee based on the fact that he lived, he died, and he rose again, that that condition can be overcome, that we can experience life. We are guaranteed death, and he is the only solution to the problem that we have made. He is the only solution to this problem that we have created for ourselves. Yeah. And the solution as you're saying, is personal. It's a, it's a new identity. Our solution isn't to find our way there. It's to be changed at an identity level. It's one that he brings to us, right? Without his presence, we only, we're only left with steps. We're only left with whatever the bad pill color was. I don't remember right now, but the one that was bad. You're only left with something else, your own source of being your life. So without his presence, which is his promise that he's giving to us now, that he is with us and he's going to come back for us, that he's preparing a place for us. And in the confusion, we're able to move into this place when we do have a troubled heart, that we are able to believe in him, but believe the right thing, that he's changed our identity. Not our circumstances in this world, you're still going to have trouble. That our behavior isn't up to me and willpower. That my uh, information, I just had more information, but it's actually his presence that and our identity in him, that makes the difference. So what do you share with someone who has a troubled heart? Maybe a friend shares with you this week and says, hey, my heart is troubled. What do you share? If my identity is not in him as bride, and if I'm not believing in his presence that I have him, then I'll try to prop them up with, good, with feel-good statements. All I'll have is feel-good statements. I'll try to say, no, you're, you're really good. You know, if someone comes and says, I, I, don't think, I don't like the way I look, and I'm like, oh, I love the way you look. I'll just be left with that, whether I believe it or not, right? Or I'll try to give them some advice or just give them some steps to, to do. Even if I put biblical words or Christian words to the steps that I give them, I'll just be left with steps that I can give them. Or I'll try to speak truth over them and tell them that they shouldn't feel the way that they're feeling, all the while putting more pressure and guilt on them. Or I could bring them to the heart of the Father to go into a deeper belief. Can they truly at a heart level believe that God is with them, that the Father longs for them, that Jesus is preparing a room for them? And this is a really hard place to be because it's much easier to teach a class about marriage than it is to actually do marriage. Does that make sense? Anybody can teach a class. Anybody can come up and just say, here's the, here's the and say it, you know, say it as truth. But when someone says something snarky to me, it's not exactly easy to live in that place where I go, you know what, I think I can respond in kindness because God has something deeper for me, right? So it's easier to, to speak truth than it is to actually live the reality of my relationship with God. So that's going to bring us to our next section here. Yeah, and we, yeah. and we see here, we see Philip actually wrestling with that. So if you see in verse number uh, seven, we, so we, verse six is the, the anchor verse of this, but look at verse number seven with me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. This is Jesus speaking. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Notice how Philip responds. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. So we need something more. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I think Jesus here is kind of throwing up his hand saying, man, I've been, you've been with me for these past three and a half years. Believe the words that I'm saying. I've proven myself with these works. And if you don't believe my words, at least look at what I've done. But here we notice this word believe, and it bookends this idea that we have so much trouble with. But if you look back at, at verse number one, we actually began here, and this section is bookended with the command, the imperative to believe. So the promise of the presence of Christ the promise of knowing the Father, the promise of being indwelt with the Spirit, the promise of living this new life, of walking along the path, of knowing the way, of engaging with the truth, the imperative into that life is believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, in this, I would love to say, man, I'm glad we're not like Thomas or Philip. Yesterday, my, um, my refrigerator um, it actually began Friday night. It began, it began going downhill. In other words, the temperature began going uphill. So my freezer was first to go, and it died. Um, and I just got this refrigerator less than a year ago, less than a year. And I got the one that Shannon wanted, which means I nearly had to mortgage uh, one of my children off. Uh, and so you would think that for uh, that many number of dollars, it would work for longer than about 10 months. So uh, this, the freezer goes and I did all the stuff, you know, pull out, you know, the, the panels, and I look at the, the coils, and nothing's defrosted, nothing's frozen over, so that looks good. Then the refrigerator part, the top part. I mean, it's got, you know, like the French doors, I guess, what you call them, and, and so it's awesome. It begins, everything in there, you start feeling it, it's like sweating, and it starts getting warm. I was seething in anger that GE could not make a refrigerator that cost those number of dollars that didn't last any more than those number of months. And I was sitting at my dining room table looking at YouTube videos on how to fix this. And I already tried all the steps and I was so angry. And at one point I, would, I said, God, if you would just heal my refrigerator, then I would be more in love with you. Then I could actually trust you. Could you just solve this problem for me? And then life would be better. Life would be easier. I said, Verse number eight, Michael said to him, Lord, show us the healed refrigerator and that would be enough for me. We see this and it makes sense, but isn't that how we live our lives? Man, if, if he were just able to make life work a little bit better, a little bit easier, make our refrigerator work the way it's supposed to, then that would be so nice. And so we live with this already not yet tension. We are going to be with Christ forever in the home that he's preparing for us, and we're not there yet. So how do we reckon these two things? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the place that we live. The past, the, when we're looking at Jesus is preparing a dwelling for us, it's a place where we're going to be held and we're going to stay, and we know that we are kept, we're held until that time as well. So the dwelling that's there, we're not going to get into the passage later in this, where the Holy Spirit comes, but also that Jesus and the Father are going to make his home in us. And while we're kind of in the already, we have a home that has been prepared, a room that has been prepared for us, a place where we're going to dwell. He also is making his dwelling in us now. And so as we live in this, it's kind of the difference. But as we're thinking about, if you ever look at Zillow or some of those sites, you're looking at houses, and you're trying to find a place that you want to go. And as you can look at it, you can see the pictures, you can imagine yourself there. But it's a whole, it's a different story when you actually move into that place, right? When it becomes home. So this isn't a thing that we're just dreaming about. Jesus isn't being philosophical. He's not just theorizing. He's saying a reality that this is where we are, we are kept, we are held. We are, he is making his home in us and we can live in that way. And I think, you know, these places when the refrigerator breaks or when, you know, there's temptations that come my way that there's this place in me that knows that heaven is real because there's nothing on this earth, C.S. Lewis will say it. We know that we're made for a different world when there's nothing in this world that completely satisfies us. And so we live with that anticipation, but also knowing that he is at home with us. 
And I, this next uh, section here, verses 12 uh, through the end, I'll just read it quickly and, and say a couple thoughts. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This idea of greater works is not that we're going to do greater miracles. You know, we're going to heal more people or we're going to be able to do greater things in that sense. But it's a greater, uh, that his presence in us means it's a greater expansion. Does that make sense? So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in that place. He's doing, what he, he's doing the work that he's doing in that place in that moment geographically. But when the Spirit comes into them, what does it say that he's, what's going to happen in Acts? So the Holy Spirit's going to come into you and what's going to happen? Anybody remember? You're going to be my witnesses where? And to the ends of the earth, right? You're going to take my works with you wherever you go. So when we have this idea that his presence is with us, that he indwells us, that we are anticipating we have a home in him that is guaranteed, and he is making his dwelling, his home in us, that what Jesus Christ is doing on earth uh, in this life, what Jesus did on earth is what he is continuing to accomplish from heaven through his people. So when you walk into a room, his presence bends in with you. Makes sense? You carry his presence into each place that you go into because he is at home in you. When you walk into a room, he sang it earlier in this song, the kingdom of God bends in with you. You carry his presence with you in everything you do and where you're going into his kingdom. So today, friend, today, even though we live in the midst of trouble, however you came into this morning, here is the invitation. The invitation to believe in God. It grants us these three promises. We've seen these this morning. It grants us these three, though. First, access to the Father. It grants us access to the Father. Here's why that's so beautiful. And here's why that today, when Jesus uses these words right here in John 14, is so spectacular because in all of the Old Testament, God the Father is only referenced by name 15 times. In all 39 books, God the Father is only referenced 15 times. And normally, in almost every single one of those, I think 14 out of 15, he's actually referenced as the father of the nation of Israel. So there's nothing personal about the, the fatherhood, the Abba Father of God. If we look at, uh, in all of the Gospels, Jesus only references the Father. He references them 160 times. So a lot more. So Jesus is saying, there's something different that I'm bringing. I'm giving you access to the Father. In fact, the book of John there are a hundred times that the Father is referenced by Jesus. And right here, just in these 14 verses, I was just counting these up as we look, uh, God the Father is referenced 13 times. So Jesus is saying, I am the way to the Father. If you believe in me, you have access to the Father like you have never had before. And I am the only way. There is no other way to get access to the Father. But secondly, like Keith just said, you have the work of the Spirit. If you believe in me, you have the work of the Spirit, which now we're able to show up on Sundays. We're able to show up to a life group, to a DNA group. We're able to serve. We're able to give. We're able to evangelize the lost. We're able to spend time in prayer, to read the scriptures, to fast, to spend time listening, not for the sake of gaining an identity, not for the sake of earning a right standing before God, but because we have an identity that's been given to us by Christ. Now the things that we do, our activity, flows from that identity, which comes only through Jesus Christ. Now we desire to spend time with God the Father through his word. Now we are compelled by the power of the Spirit to proclaim what he has done to those around us. Yeah, and this word, I mean, you mentioned this word dwell. It says, I mean, if we look back at the word rooms, the word there for rooms is actually the word meno. Everybody say meno. And in the Greek, that literally means to dwell. And we'll see it in chapter 15. To abide, to live with, to remain, to stay, to be at home, to be at home. And then lastly, when you believe in him, it means that Jesus is with you. Whatever the trouble is, good days, bad days, good kids, bad kids, good wife, bad wife, good husband, no husband, whatever it is, 
Why should I be the same? Okay, so um, no husband or bad husband. So. Jesus is right there with you. And if we go back to look at chapter 13, he just got through talking about the last supper that he has there with his disciples. What he is saying to his disciples is, this is the cost of my bride. Listen, he's saying the cost of my bride is my body and my blood. Because they're at the last supper and they just got through eating it. There as he participates with them, he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood that was shed for you. He took the bread and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. What's the context of this passage? Marriage. It's intimate. He's saying, you can't come to me. I'm coming back to get you. He's saying, but the cost for me coming to get you is my life. Me and the Father have guaranteed this. Take, drink this cup. It signifies, okay, all right, I am trusting in you. I am having faith in you. He calls it a new covenant with them. In other words, the cost of the bride, the cost of us being with him forever was his life. That's really good news for us this morning. So he calls us as we are waiting with hopeful anticipation, as we are longing, looking forward to seeing Jesus Christ face to face. He says to us in the middle of trouble, in the midst of joy, wherever we are in life today, he says, believe in me. Believe. That's all it takes is belief. It's simple, but it's not easy. It requires our lives. So as we celebrate this time together of communion, may this be a time when we are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, when we will get to eat and to drink with him forever. We're doing this in memory of his sacrifice. And we're reminded this morning that we have a new identity in Jesus. So we can freely confess our sin, repent of our sin, and look to him as the way, the truth, and praise God. He is our life. And so for those who have placed their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, who are looking for something that this world does not have to offer, it can only be found in Jesus. Friend, this meal is for you. I would invite you to join me as Christ's family. If you have put your faith and trust in him, there are stations set up around the room. There's a gluten-free station back here. You are invited to join me in participating in this meal of faith together.